0: Welcome to the Strength Coach Experience podcast. podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lego. And here we, and here we go. Go, go, go. Welcome, everyone, to the Strength Coach Experience, um, episode 27. Uh, Today, I want to welcome Kier. Kier is a rugby strength coach, and also uh, he runs the Strength Coach Network. Uh, Kier, welcome for for coming on the show, man. I I appreciate you being here, and I can't wait to get this discussion underway.
1: My pleasure, man. Thank you for uh, inviting me
0: on. Awesome, awesome. Uh, So why don't we just dive in? We'll do a little bit of your background growing up, and then we'll kind of take things from there.
1: So... uh... You know, wanna be professional rugby player. Uh dawned on me at the age of um fifteen, sixteen that I was uh, five foot ten, uh white, chubby, unathletic, not brave, not skillful, <laughs> all of that good stuff. And uh, yeah, man, it wasn't happening. You know, i I'd, I'd at, at the time this is what, nineteen ninety nine. The, the first year that they had a representative team, I got into the team. So for like my, it would be the equivalent of my state. So I, I, I got to that level. And then within a year I got cut and it just, you know, developmentally I was a late developer and um, it's just one of those things like having looked back on that. And then also my time working in professional youth athletics. Once you're out, you're out pretty much. It's very, very rare that you're out and then you come back in just because, uh you know the, if if you adhere to the ten thousand hour rule the the hours are not created equally and they 're getting that many more hours so you know by the time I got to my late teens it was it was extremely evident that I was never going to be a pro, so I thought right want to be as involved in in the game as I can be uh if i 'm not going to be on the field you know i don't want a real job so i 'm going to, or i 'm going to be a strength coach so initially that was my intent and um The academic side did not come difficult to me at school. So I I got it into my head, well, it's not academic enough to be a coach. So I'm going to go be a psychologist. So I did something like six months of a psychology degree and hated it. And um, the excuse was I tore my ACL playing at the weekend. I lived on the sixth floor and there wasn't an elevator. So I was like, well, I can't go up those steps. Now I'm going to have to leave university. (laughs) So I started again um, in... You know, in the States, it would be called kinesiology. So I did that for an undergrad. And uh, at the end of it, I was forced against my will to engage with the reality, which was that I was a ship coach. I'd never coached a group of athletes before. Um, knew, knew my way around research, knew how to read and all that kind of stuff. But I'd never actually coached and uh, let alone coached a group of athletes. And um, I basically spent two years in the wilderness after that. So I, I'd enrolled in... Uh, a postgraduate degree I was a you know garden variety personal trainer and I was volunteering, coaching my own team, coaching here coaching there just doing all, you know trying to uh, accumulate as many hours as I could um, whilst I was doing that I was interviewing at a number of places kept getting rejected. Then at the end of the second year I, I was finally good enough to work for free three year. <laughs> so I, I got my start in pro rugby, uh rugby a team called London wasps one of the most successful teams probably in English history. Um, They were definitely on the downward slide. I think they'd won the premiership 18 months or two years before I got there. And then the next year we almost got relegated. So it it was nothing to do with me, that success. I I did a year there um, for free uh, in London, which was very, very tough. They basically created a job for me in the second year. So... I think at the time the poverty line for London was fifteen thousand. They paid me ten thousand, so it was it was still tough. Yeah, so I did that for a year. Then I uh, I tried to do some maneuvering in the second year, realizing that hey, like you can't live on ten grand in London, and they could give you I don't know twenty five percent pay rise every year for five years. And you're still going to be in shit. So it's like hey, you you need to you need to be with the senior team. So I tried to position myself to make that happen. And um, midway through the year, the head guy left. And then a new head came in and there was reshuffling. And I didn't get it. I ended up getting head of academy, which, you know, I was 26, 27, responsible for over 100 athletes. You know, I was it, looking back, it was a hell of a job to have a 26, 27. But I threw my toys out the pram, not happy. So I actually dropped down a level to link up with the coach that i previously worked with. Uh, but I was, you know, head of a senior team. That, that was one thing that had been kind of leveled against me in job interviews, not enough adult experience. So I thought, all right, fuck you, I'm going to go do it. So I went and got adult experience with that. By then I'd made the decision that I was going to move to Australia. So I did a temporary contract with this team in England. I go to Australia, realized oh, I've, I've basically left a career in England to come and start completely over again in Australia and I arrived for mid-season, so I'm basically waiting for the season to expire because nobody hires mid-season. And through dumb luck, I got the opportunity to be temporary cover for the Argentinian national team. So in the space of seven or eight months, I went from being an academy strength and conditioning coach in the premiership in London to assisting with the top 10 team in the world through EXOS. And they said, oh, you could be there a week, you could be there three months. But in my head, I was like, right, once it's in my resume, you can't take it away from me. So I, did, I, I ended up in there for three months, came back. One of the teams that didn't want to pick up the phone from, you know, to me when I arrived in Australia, yeah. once I had that international team on my resume, they invited me to apply for their jobs. Current, They were the current champions of Australia, which means they're the best team in the world. I go there as the head of academy. Uh, within three weeks, they made me the head of strength for the adult team because of you know internal politics, which – If you can get hired for a job like that after three weeks, that should set the alarm bells ringing. I'll tell anyone else listening to this. That is not a good sign. It will feel good. It is not good. Uh, And it was a disaster. You know, I quit after six months um, just because I felt like it was compromise after compromise. I kept selling out, couldn't look in the mirror. I thought, nah, like I, I remember I worked out, I caught myself working out. You know, this many more weeks that I can tolerate at this rate per week. I'm going to save this much and then I can leave. And I'm like, nah, time to leave. So actually, I, I went back to Exos and said, you know, I made a mistake. Can I come back and contract for you again? And I thought I was going to get sent to China. So they would never say it. But like, if you're the, the second class citizens of international contractors for Exos, go to China. You know the the lucky people go to Europe, South America, all that kind of stuff. If you if you're a bottom feeder, you go to China. But the cover, or you know, the replacement that they had assigned to cover me dropped out to go to another team, so I ended up being my own replacement. I said, you know, you have to be there for the next two years. You have to go to the World Cup, all that kind of stuff. And I did. And you know, we we probably significantly overachieved at that World Cup. Uh, we were probably you know, top 10 in the world leading into that. We ended up finishing fourth in the world. We put 40 points on the second best team in the world. You know, we had a big win in that final year and that led to me going to Tokyo. So I'd initially wanted to stay with Argentina and I'd negotiated a deal and everything like that. But then I had a non-compete clause in the contract. They wanted to sign me directly, didn't want to pay Exos. And that was it. I was out of the job. So that that was actually my reward for you know coming fourth in the world was no job. But I ended up going to Tokyo, um, which is probably like the, the most lucrative league in rugby. Um, I just made a decision to go out for two years and get paid. And it, it basically drew a line under rugby for me. That was enough. And uh, midway through that contract, I decided, right, I want to come to the States and work in the NFL. And I started working at University of Richmond. Um, the girl that I was seeing in Tokyo um, – came over to stay for uh, a week and our two-year-old son is now asleep in his uh, his bedroom so that didn't work out. and I'm now a single parent um, but it, it basically I went from Richmond to William & Mary. I was head at William & Mary for two years and um, this last October because of my, my situation with my son and, and the way things are with business and just you know a variety of different things I thought it was the right time to take a step back and and concentrate on the education. So that's, you know, I just, that was about 11 years of my career there.
0: Yeah. A lot of, lot of stuff in there, but like I said, a lot of, a lot of big points for anybody listening, you know, I just want to point out, um, you know, and go back a little bit. When you first started out, you said you were, you know, the the kind of academic stuff came uh, easily to you. What are some of the things that were difficult for you? Uh, most when you started like coaching actual athletes and, you know, we already went over the easier stuff. So what are some of the things kind of early on that you kind of had to overcome uh, because you didn't have that experience, you know, coaching a big group of guys or, or guys at all?
1: You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things I think, you know, I've probably done, I've, I've done a lot of podcasts since I left just because I think it's one of those things people are like, that guy's of leaving. Like, and I made you know, I, I wrote something about it and 10,000 people read it. Um, but it's one of those things that to me, the more academic the discipline is, the more academics will prepare you. The more practical the discipline is, the more practice prepares you. So, you know, I'm, I'm it may be different now, but you know, I graduated my undergraduate degree never having coached a group of athletes, and all of a sudden, I want to coach a group of athletes. Like, of course, it's not You know, it, it, when you phrase it like that, of course, it makes sense that you're not going to be adequately prepared. So, that was that was a major thing for me. Um and you know, I, I probably made a lot of classic mistakes that a lot of young coaches do, which is uh dictatorial. You know, this is what yeah, and you know, this is what we're gonna do. And if, you know, if you don't agree, we'll fuck you and stuff like that. And <laughs> you you quickly get out of that because you know you you catch more flies with sugar than you do with shit. Mm-hmm. I think in, inevitably, um when, when you're in an environment that people can and will work in for free because it's so fun. You know, I tell my interns, my, my former interns, there's a reason they don't do internships at McDonald's because it sucks. Mm-hmm. When you're in a sporting environment, people will happily do for free. Everyone is enjoying themselves so much that you can, you can get a little bit caught up in the work and not have that kind of like, uh, you know, be seeing yourself and trying to analyze everything you're doing. I think all young interns can get overly familiar with the athletes, which certainly you know if there's a spectrum I'm closer towards the familiar end um, probably later in my career i'm more i'm more familiar, one because I didn't care and two because I didn't have anything to prove in in my head um and i i I think when you're older, you can switch it on and off a little bit more, but when you're a young coach um I just think there's that in, that insecurity a little bit of you you want to prove yourself and you want to be liked, um, but you know pe- people grow out of it. Uh, you, you, I think you just find out naturally if if, if you're paying enough attention you realise you're going to get walked over. <laughs> um, so those are probably the big things, but it, it's it's just one of those things that w- with with time and reflection you're going to get there.
0: Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more on the experience. Like I said, it's the same thing with college, you know, especially in in this field, you know, you can get a master's and never coach anybody, you know, same thing with me when I give advice, I'm like, when you have the time when you're going through your undergrad, right. When you're going through your grad stuff and you have time, you don't have to have a full-time job. You don't have really responsibilities. You have to get out and, you know, get that experience because just like you said, if you can't do it or you've never done it, it's not going to come like certain things and certain knowledge and, you know, uh, certain things you've done will help. But, you know, everything kind of changes. I always say it when you're standing in front of 100 people and they're staring at you through your face and they're looking for you to give them something to do and whatever you say, you know, is kind of the next step for them, you know, and I think that's, that was the realization for me, you know, when I was a baseball first day with the team six in the morning, I'm standing in the gym terrified. And they're all staring at me, all 45 people waiting for me to say something. So I think that's a great point with the, you know, the experience. And also just going back into all your other stuff for everybody listening, you know, professional sports and, and everything that is involved in it. Make sure you do your due diligence, but make sure you get that experience, right? Because everybody always is the same thing happened to me. You know I was with the Mets. Oh, how could you leave the, you know, leave the Mets? Why would you want to leave professional baseball? It's the same thing. The long hours, that different thing, right? You kind of get there and it's, it's not what you think it is. So I think that's a, an old. Over- Overwhelming thing that I always want to talk about on the podcast. Make sure you do your due diligence. Make sure you're getting your experience because what happens if you go into a thing and you're dead set on being, let's just say, an NFL strength coach or baseball, and you work your whole you know life—that's what you want to do. That's all you do. When you get there and you hate it, you kind of get pigeonholed, and then you're stuck kind of doing some other things.
1: Yeah, I think you are. You know, and, and what it is? Well, it's I had a conversation with somebody uh, recently about that. What it is? It's the goalpost move. So I think whenever, whenever you enter into a work relationship with an institution or you work with a partner or whatever, you're, you're entering into that relationship because at that moment in time, you're getting as much from it as they are. But the, you know, certainly in some places I've worked, the longer it goes on, the more it's about what they can get from you than the other way around. So you know, for example, if you look at like me at William & Mary, I was having a baby and they, I didn't have health insurance at Richmond uh, there was a question mark about whether I could actually work in college football and run a team. Cause I, I wasn't running it at Richmond. Uh, there was a chance to work with Eric Corum, who, you know, was the director of the Texans, like, all this kind of stuff. And then quite frankly, they got a really good deal. You know, they, they were paying me a fifth of what I earned in Japan <laughs> and I was certainly a better coach than when I was in Japan. And of course, as time goes on, I could afford the the insurance through, through my own um, money the question mark's been removed after a year, Eric's left. And, you know, now it's just like, well, they're they they they're getting more from the relationship than I am. And I thought, right, time to leave. So I think there's there's two things, which is, if you're the employee, you need to be honest about what it is you want and what they're getting from you and vice versa. But if you're the employer and you're trying to hold on to athletes, you're going to have to keep moving the, the goalposts for them and, and keep providing more and more and more to incentivize them to stay. Because it's just a fact to me that, It's very, very rare that someone's going to, especially when you're a director, you turn up in your first year and win a championship. Most staffs are in place for a really long time and the key members on the bus don't change their seats. And it's like, it takes a long time to win a championship. You can't do that if you're changing 50% of your staff every year. I mean, that particular department is going to change, has changed 80% in three months and will change 100 very soon.
0: Yeah, no, that the change is there. And I want to go back to what you said, you know, if anybody gives you a job or you get a, a high end job that you don't think you're prepared for at that time, really fast, usually there's something wrong. I use it in, you know, if you go on Indeed or certain places, Glassdoor, NSCA, you'll see certain colleges, they have an opening and it's a big deal. But if you watch, it's open every six months, and people are like, "Oh, why don't you do this? Why, why should I apply for this place?" And I'm like, "No, there's something wrong. If somebody's leaving every six months, but they're offering eighty grand, something's going on because you know that money is is huge in the industry right now, and I think that's very important to look at those things that you talked about before."
1: Right, it's that girl that, you know, she changes boyfriends every six months and she she claims, you know, oh, I'm just unlucky and this guy did this. And really, it's, nah, she's, she's a lunatic. <laughs> it's her problem.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then just, you know, going back to what you said, too, when you get into these coaching roles, make sure – you're getting what you want out of the relationship, right? Because originally you're going to come in, you're at the bottom of the post usually, but as you start to go up and you get sort of the things you want, those kind of fears go away and you prove yourself, make sure you're progressing because a lot of times, and from my experience, it happened to me, you'll be at a place you love it. First year is all, you know, nostalgia, if you will, right? Then the second year comes along and pretty soon it's the third year, you're in the same spot you are or you're not getting any better. And I think it's very important for those listening to understand, make sure that you're, you know, taking the time to, to see how you were doing, because you'll get caught, right? It'll be, you could say, you know, your experience too, four or five years down the road, you're stuck at the same place. And you're like, this is terrible. I'm not making the money I want. I'm away from my family. And it starts to weigh on your coaching. And then when that starts to happen, I think you, you start to let the kids down a little bit.
1: Well, I mean, not, not to mention that it's, it's it's a red flag. I mean, if you, if you are somewhere for 10, 15, 20 years, it better be because you're winning championships. Because if it's not, it means you got comfortable and I'm going to question why.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if, if it's not working, it's not winning, especially in those high uh, pressure situations and they're not cycling through, it's either you're winning championships, like you said, or they've, they've kind of given up and they have no you know no plans for the future, if you will. Hmm. Uh, so I want to go through just some of your uh, philosophies. Like when you're coaching... Uh, the teams, rugby, football, everything. What are some of the, the key philosophies that you use in your training? Well,
1: I mean, are you familiar with uh, like a bondichuk approach? Yeah. Yeah. So I was pretty lucky. I got to meet the, the guy that translates all this stuff into English now. So oh, really? it, it's a funny story. Like he's, he's from uh, Utah. He's a Mormon. He got sent over to Russia on mission and he happens to be a powerlifter. So he, he ends up being fluent in Russian and translates all the stuff. And one of the things that I, I took away from him is if you look at that bondage system, anything that is specific in nature is something that you can have a high degree of confidence, if not near certainty that when you improve that training exercise, the sport result will improve.
0: So why don't we just go into uh, for everybody listening out there, why don't you just go into the vendor system and just uh, kind of explain that a little bit.
1: So basically, he's he's the most successful Olympic throws coach of all time, and his, his system is built on the idea that you can classify exercises according to their correspondence to the event that you're trying to improve. Okay, and there are it's basically a spectrum from general to the most specific, which he would call a competition exercise, which is basically you're doing the event itself with something heavier or lighter, or you're doing you know variations thereof. In that system, anything that is specific in nature, you're saying with a high degree of confidence or near certainty that when you improve performance in that exercise, you're going to see an improvement in what they would call the sport result. So, for example, if I uh, throw an overweight shot and my PR goes up by one and a half feet, I should see an increase, you know, a near certain increase in my, you know, competition weight. Which is fine in stopwatch sports. It's probably fine for pitching a baseball where you can measure the output. But if you kind of like run that experiment again in your head and you say, you know, if you're a field sport athlete and I increase your, you know, top speed by half a meter per second, or if I take two tenths of your 40, can I say with near certainty or, you know, a high degree of confidence that you're you're going to increase your yards per reception or your, you know, yards per carry, all that kind of stuff? The answer is clearly no because. You know, even at the NFL Combine, those markers are an extremely poor predictor of career productivity.
0: Tom Burdy, yep.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look, let's put it this way. What do you think the, the best predictor of number of touchdowns scored is in the NFL for a receiver?
0: How many touchdowns you have? No,
1: no, no, like phys- physical quality.
0: Probably speed or catches, something crazy? <laughs> body weight, body weight.
1: <laughs> Heavier receivers yeah. more touchdown. It just—it makes no sense, right? So, what you what you soon realize is that physical preparation, anything that does not have a te- technical, tactical component or a psychological component to it, is general specific at best. And by that, it means it increases the potential for you to, you know, more usefully use. Your, tech, your tactical, technical awareness. So it just expands the envelope. doesn't mean you're going to tap into it, right? So when you work in team sports as a strength and conditioning coach, that can be a very liberating thing or it can be a very frustrating thing because you realize that you can do absolutely everything right as a strength and conditioning coach. Bigger, faster, stronger, fitter, leaner, like all that kind of stuff. And they can actually, they can actively get worse at their sport. <laughs> so you, you're only as good as their ability to tap into that physical preparation with mastery of the sport. So once once you come to that conclusion, by default, you have to understand that anything that detracts from the mastery of the sport long-term, even though it may fluff the ego of the strength coach, is not productive. Um, And everything needs to be kind of like Pass through the filter of, is it going to make them better in their sport? And you realize that physical metrics, so even, you know, even in the NFL, no, no predictor of uh, career productivity. All it is is a barrier to entry. So you need to, you know, if you read Game Changer by Fergus Conway, he talks about, you know, what's what's the minimum standard required for the, the level that you want to play at check it off so it's not a limiting factor and then it's going to be about how well you can you can execute a tactical technical game plan. So physical qualities do a good job. Some of them do a good job of distinguishing between the levels. So you can look at amount of data blind and be like, oh, you know, that guy's probably around one pick, that guy's probably around two, around three. It doesn't tell you how good you're going to be amongst the other round one picks. So it's, it's actually not that, that much of a, a predictor of performance. So what you need to do is here's one thing I, th- I think is true, but I can't prove whoever trains the most wins with a massive caveat of it has to be purposeful practice. It has to be uh, not in a way that detracts from physical qualities. They has to be robust all that kind of stuff. But if you try and achieve that from your kind of like areas of strength and conditioning coach, I think it's going to be way more productive within the realm of team sports than what currently happens in north america which is well the squat numbers went up i mean that's not even predictive of speed and power the squat numbers went up um the bench went up look at the three cone drill and then you do this and then the team goes oh and 13
0: (laughs) yeah no i I completely agree like i said i I think that's still something that's Uh, Within the, the field, you know, because basically the basics of strength conditioning, you look at an athlete on the field, you watch what they do, how can I make them better at that it doesn't matter you know, that's how it is. It's easy. You know, I did a podcast uh, a few months ago with a strength coach and we talked about it. He said, I can get more out of a guy sitting next to me at a soccer game about what he's going to do and the predictors of the things that the athlete needs than somebody else who overthinks everything, which is true. And I think you're right. It's a pat on the back. If you can't do those things and not saying that everybody that uses those metrics and those things isn't good at what they're doing. But a lot of times, if you can't do that, or you don't want to take the time to analyze those numbers and really find those predictors, there's, you're going to do the, oh, they they're one look at his one-rep squad is, is 600 pounds, his one-rep bench, you know, the three-cone yeah. drill, all those things. And in reality, they mean absolutely nothing. I mean, we just talked about Look at Tom Brady just won the Super Bowl. You have Lionel Messi, like, all the way through, and they're, like, revered, and they're always mm-hmm. the best. But it's still it, – it seems like it's kind of hard to pick up, especially here in the United States where, you know, they use those numbers.
1: Well, I mean, one, one thing that I tried to do during my time with Argentina with our, with our staff is – I I really like thought experiments and taking things to like a a, a theoretical extreme, because it's going to reveal your preferences. So one of the things we used to ask our coaches is if you had to write down on a postcard, what it is your position does better than anyone else in the field, what would that be? Now the answer to that question is going to be your SPP. So elite athletes make their living by being world-class at one or two things, really good at, uh, you know, several things and okay at a bunch of stuff. And, you know, if you kind of ask the additional questions, what's the stuff that makes you most fatigued on the field of play? What's the things that you do most often? And what's the things that are most consequential to the outcome of the game? Those are the things that you need to be improving with training. And it can be very, very easy to measure those things in stopwatch sports. In field-based sports, it's harder to do. So you have to come up with surrogate measures as, you know, you're going to infer improved performance from that which, you know, typically in field-based sports, it's going to be sprinting, jumping, and maybe some kind of like loaded explosive strength movement. Um, You know, you can make the argument that if you are training and numbers in the weight room are going up and those tests are not improving, you have wasted your time as a strength coach, which can be be frustrating to, to hear that, but, you know, ultimately the program has not worked until its impact is felt on the field.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. That's what you're trying to do. And, you know, that's that's the goal. You know, when you write a program from day one to the end of the season, it should be to get the team better. If they get bigger and stronger and faster, but their batting average goes down, their velo goes down or they don't run 40s faster. I think you failed. And I, and I think it's it allows more strength coaches to kind of hang around because, oh, he's been in for 20 years. Well, how many players have got drafted or how many championships won? Well, zero. But, you know, every year they're they have this great video that goes on YouTube with rock music in the back and they're all throwing weights around. You know, and I think that's a, you know, a small issue in the field.
1: Well, I mean, there was there was a guy that just got the boot as a result of a coaching change from a major, major football team. And on his way out, they did a, a blog post or some, somebody had written an article about it. So, you know, during this guy's tenure, the, the, the team gained this many pounds of lead mass and lost this amount of fat. And, you know, clearly it hasn't helped. <laughs> it hasn't helped because you're on your, you're on the your way out the door. So it's just like,
0: yeah, you, you, you need
1: to, you need to measure the stuff that actually matters.
0: Of course. Yeah. And I, and I think anybody listening, that is the biggest thing that needs to you know be put out there. Cause you know, I think social media in my opinion makes it worse because you know, mm-hmm. I do baseball. So I hear about all these, well, if you, you know, one and a half reverse, uh, lunge your body weight you throw faster Oh, this guy's doing cleans he throws this fast I'm like it has nothing to do with anything I'm like that kid who they're showing you a video of throwing 97 he walked in the gym probably throwing like 94 or he could have walked into a gym throwing 94 just through natural things and then this is a, a byproduct and I think it's backwards he can reverse lunge double his body weight because he throws 97 not he can throw 97 because he can reverse lunge his body weight
1: Right. Same thing. People say strength, builds speed. No. The reason he's friggin' strong is because he can run 10 meters a second.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yep. And if you look at all across the board, I mean, I had the uh, the opportunity, I went to Exos in Arizona and I watched the Olympic team run uh, with, with Dan Path and the way that they move, if you just watch them practice, watch everything that they do, it's no wonder they run sub tens. I mean, just so they can play a violin as they move through. It's so graceful. Everything is, Nothing is wasted and everything is just technical, technical, technical. And that comes down from them. You know, they're smiling, doing warmups and they're literally perfect.
1: Well, here's the thing though, right? I've, I've watched that group as well. How, you know, you're, you're the strength coach. Your, your domain is the gym. If you look at like the attention to detail, the, the coordination, the rhythm, the relaxation outside the gym versus inside the gym, inside the gym, it's okay. But outside the gym is where they make their money and they're much,
0: much, much faster than any field athlete. Yep, absolutely. And just touching on that too, one of the things I noticed, they were doing wicket drills out on that big field that they use, and it was literally they were walking around in rest with smiles on their face. The second they hit that line, everything went flat and it was go time, you know, and it's mm. another thing with the mindset. Everything is, is locked into to what they're doing. Mm. Uh, so I just want to go through the, uh, you know, we brought it up, the Strength Coach Network. Let's talk a little bit about that, what that is and, and kind of what you do there.
1: To uh, not have another Kia Wenham flat in 2008, wondering why the fuck this degree isn't helping him get a job as a strength coach. <laughs> so I think, you know, I, I, I get a lot of, I mean, I give as good as I get, but I get a lot of shit online for uh, stating the fact that I think fundamentally between them, the accrediting bodies and the university systems have failed aspiring strength coaches. Um, I had an argument with a, a university lecturer on, on Twitter today, which was, what is it that you do that is so unique that I need to give you, in America, a 100 grand over four years? Because it's clearly not returning in salary. The, the information and the expertise is not unique to university. And he claimed it was. And I said, oh, I can go offer someone down the road, you know, a lecture of five grand to do a course for me and collect money. Um, and he said, oh, you know, we we verified that, you know, um, we, we verify the quality of knowledge and accreditation. So I said, it is just about the letters after your name at the end of it. Like, you can be quite honest about it, that's what it is. But I mean, if you look at. There are thousands of coaches coming off the conveyor belt every year. I won't say coaches. I'll say graduates. There are thousands of graduates coming off the conveyor belt every year, a hundred grand in debt that cannot coach their way out of a wet paper bag. And you, you say to the universities, well, what are you going to do about this? Oh, well, we're not trying to prepare everyone for a professional sport and it's not for everyone and blah, blah, blah. My reply to that is narrow it down. You know, if, find the people that do want to be coaches and create a degree for them and teach them how to coach. Then you speak to the accrediting bodies and they say, Oh, well, it's not on us to tell the universities what to put in their uh, courses and so on. And, you know, this is what we think is important. And yet they don't speak to anyone professional sport because the accreditations never change. So I thought, right, I can complain about the pain of labor or I can try and have the baby. So what I'm trying to do with Strength Coach Network is address the gaps that I feel those two institutions leave, which is typically going to be real world applicable knowledge from people that make their money coaching athletes. Um, the ability to, uh, you know, build and cultivate a professional network because who, you know, gets you through the door, what, you know, keeps you there. Uh, you will not find a strength coach at a high level that was not either given the job or asked to apply. Um, and then, if, if you accept the nature of the strength and conditioning profession as it is, wages are going down, not up. So in, you know, free free markets, the more participants join the marketplace, the more they compete and race down to the bottom to deliver higher quality offerings to the end consumer at a lower price. End consumers being the athlete and the product being your labor, unfortunately. So, you know, I know someone that, that worked for a premiership academy 20 years ago And I think the amount of money he earned is now half without accounting for inflation. Um, The job that I did was advertised recently for uh, 3000 pounds more after 10 years of inflation. So in reality it's less and probably they're going to get a better applicant than I was when I did. So if you accept that fact, what you have to do is, is understand you have to do things to, to fortify yourself against that. So you're looking at, you know, the way that I perceive strength and conditioning to be is when you, when you come in, it's shit. You need to get yourself out of that shit as soon as possible and get up the ladder to a point where you can make it work and that you're not spending years and years and years in poverty, struggling with that kind of stuff. So being strategic about career development uh, understanding the business of coaching negotiating secondary income all that kind of stuff so that's kind of like a three-pronged approach of the networking the knowledge and then the, the career development that's what we try and offer
0: i i completely agree uh you know going through the college you know thankful for my experience all the teachers but mm. for me college was that background the kinesiology the anatomy but after that you know, everything that I did was, was on my own and not that, I didn't, not that I did on my own, but meeting people, networking, working with the teams, and they don't teach you that. You can literally, just like you said, you can go to university, you can coach for six years, you come out with a master's degree in a CSCS, and then you, you can't coach anything. And, mm-hmm. then, and then what happens is, you know, I think a lot of times people hate the field or it's just having understanding and understanding that I'm going to coach 100 people. This is what I want to do. I better learn how to coach 100 people. From the second I get to college to the second I leave, I better be around a hundred people and learn how to coach those people. And I think that's a huge flaw. And the business thing is huge. They teach you nothing about business. They don't teach you hourly stuff, insurance, anything. You know, most people I'm sure you talk to, it's all you figure it out on your own. You come out, somebody asks you how much you charge. You first couple of times you fumble around numbers, and then you know, eventually you you get through it. But I think that's huge. You know, you don't have a business plan, nobody tells you how to write things. Present stuff, you know. Insurance is a small issue if you screw up with that stuff. Uh, so I I I completely agree with what you're doing because those things are just not taught, and it's continuous, you know. And if they're accredited by the the certification companies, then why aren't they teaching what what the certification is supposed to allow you to do? You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna allow somebody to sit for a CSCS or you know a CS the other one with the the college stuff, then you should be making sure that college gets you ready for the next step right after you get your cert. And that's just not a thing. Right. I've, no one has
1: yet to ask me how many cycles of air per hour I need in, in my weight room, <laughs> you know, like the CSCS uh, mm-hmm. facility design stuff. Yep. So.
0: Or how high the mirror is supposed to be off the wall or, you know, everything. Spacing, else. spacing between racks.
1: The, yep. uh, the answer is cram them in as many as you can get in the room and then cross your fingers.
0: Exactly. And, and you touched on it before, you know, every strength coach, the plans look great in the office the night before. Ninety-nine percent of the time you're gonna you're gonna go get that with a group of people and something is gonna happen, go wrong. And I think where you make your you know, your bang for your buck is having a structured, you know, plan, knowing what you're gonna do, but being able to adapt to whatever is going on. And they can't teach you that in a book or on a cert. His, I mean, here's an example
1: for you. The the accreditation process in the UK, in the UK, sorry, is is slightly different in that there is a practical component. I've, I've a lot of issues with it, but you know, one of the modules is Olympic lifting. You know, the, the whole thing is you, you must be able to do the Olympic lifts, coach the Olympic lifts if you want to be a strength coach, which is wrong. But if you accept that premise, you know, okay. You you spent all this time coaching with a broomstick and all this stuff. To, to my mind, it would be way more productive to say to an aspiring strength coach, you know, here's how you modify around, you can't axi- axially load. Here's how you modify if they can't grip, here's how to modify if they have back pain, all this kind of stuff, because I modify exercises on a daily basis, you know, I, you know, it would be more valuable to, for example, do that, than worry about the double knee bend or, you know, do you do the reverse chain method and all this kind of stuff. And I just think it's, it, it doesn't reflect reality um and that's the frustrating thing from the uk side of things i don't have the accreditation now the the criticism of me would be i don't have the accreditation i don't care but it hasn't changed in 10 years we i've been speaking to people that for 10 years have been criticizing that that accreditation process and they'll go "Mm, if it's a problem change it and if it's not it must be perfect
0: Yeah, I think you get caught because, you know, one of the things with the CSCS, I don't like it. I've never liked it, but I have to have it because it's what allows me to do, you know, what I do. But it, it hasn't gone anywhere. You know, you you it's the same things. Uh, my complaint has always been, if you look in the books, it's all studies. The whole chapter is a bunch of studies. And I'm like, well, how are you supposed to learn? So I have to go and grab these studies and read, you know, that's most of the stuff. There's not a lot of information in there. And then when you take the modules, like you talked about to get CEUs and different things, it's all stuff, you know, already, Mm -hmm. you know, you can take the quizzes off of base knowledge and it doesn't go anywhere. And, you know, like you've touched on again, all the stuff that they teach you to fix never happens. Everybody knows if you're doing an Olympic lift and your back hurts to stop, it's where, you know, you have a kid who has to Olympic lift, but he has some joint, disfig- you know, dysfunction going on, but we still have to get him to clean those were you, you know, that's where things get tricky. But if somebody has a sprained ankle or they have upper cross syndrome, obviously anybody that does that is not going to put them through that exercise. So it's kind of a list of things that you already know, but all the hard stuff comes when you're with the experience and stuff they don't teach you. Well,
1: right, the CSC, CSCCA.
0: Oh, I master, took that
1: yeah. master coach qualification. Yeah. The the sole requirement is that you last twelve years, and it, you know what's what's the best way to last twelve years in this field? Hitch you, hit your wagon to a coach that likes you. No reflection of ability whatsoever. In fact, there was a you know the guy that uh, ran a kid to death at school a couple of years ago is still or Oregon. No, nah, Maryland. He's still oh, okay. on their, He's still on their website as a master coach. Wow. And he got hired by Sorynex, which is why I would never give Sorynex another penny.
0: Yeah, I I actually I had the pleasure. I took, you know, the pleasure. I took that test, too. And it was mm. just a disaster. I um actually when I I went there to flew out, I, I did my intern stuff. And, and I have, you know, this is I have cerebral palsy. And literally they were going to not let me take the test because they said if I couldn't do the exercises, you know, you can't coach. If you, <laughs> I said, guy, I've coached. 500 athletes, I was like, and then I I stopped. I took a breath and I said, Are you trying to tell me because I'm affected with a disability I can't take your (laughs) test? And the guy goes, Hold on, hold on. And he goes away for about five minutes, comes back, and he's like, Hey, listen, if there's anything you need, I said, Yeah, exactly. Because if you don't let me take this, I said, Your organization is going to be named after me. I was like, And then they let me do it. (laughs) And they had some guy come out, but it was still a disaster, you know, the whole thing. It's all day, but I, I just, you know, the master. I'm like I, everything that I've done in my career up to that point, it wasn't a ton, but I was there. I'm judged by there was 40 people at the time, and I'm mm-hmm. like, what, what separates them from me? How are you different than me? You've been in here for 12 years. That doesn't, that doesn't say anything. So, completely agree mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, man, they're crazy. Um, so let's just go through. Uh, we've already talked about, uh, you know, things that you, you know, you don't like, and things. What are some things you'd like to see that? can change that you think are kind of applicable in the next five years, like things that we'll be able to change in the industry.
1: I mean, what William and Mary tried to do, uh, for about <laughs> six, six to nine months, it, and then promptly backtracked because they realized it was hard to do is, you know, Kansas are trying to do it. Um, there's some other good schools that, you know, Elon, Elon do a really good job. Villanova, Um, uh, Towson is like this high performance athlete centered approach and you know basically if you accept the fact and it is a fact the human body has a limited capacity to respond to stress real or imagined physical or non physical Uh, and when you exceed that capacity bad things happen Um, obviously as non-exercise stresses rise and fall, the amount of physical activity that you can expose an athlete to in a day rises and falls. And if one hand doesn't know what the other's doing in terms of, well, he did this in rehab. He's did this with the strength coach in the morning. Now he's on the field doing, you know, uh, football or whatever. That's when athletes break. So what needs to happen is you need to have a kind of like centralized model where the athlete is at the center of everything and. You, you know everything the athlete's doing in a day so that there's, there's give and take within the program. Say so, oh you know, rehab end, ended up being a lot harder than we thought it was going to be this morning. We, you know, really, really went hard. He's, he's fatigued. He had a problem with this. Let's modify indie uh, in football. Team periods we will only put him in for two-thirds of the reps, stuff like that. If he opens up, blow the whistle so he's not stressing his hamstring, all this kind of stuff. Those would be small examples of how you can have an athlete-centered approach. The, the problem with it is is that you need someone with sufficient knowledge, skills, experience to be at the middle of it all and to coordinate all the pieces. That's why it's really, really hard to do. The second reason it's hard to do is it involves telling sport coaches no. And in North America, the sport coaches, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all combined. And, well, I've been in this sport for X number of years. I literally I had a meeting this year. I've been coaching for 27 years. I said, I don't care how long you've been coaching, you're up. <laughs> and that, you know, I left shortly after, but you have to be able to, uh, one, give somebody the authority and the responsibility to have those kind of conversations, uh, two, to, you know, have difficult conversations, to communicate with people, to collect data, process it, and use it in a timely manner. And then, you know, constantly be rolling the rock up a hill because everybody that touches the athlete wants their pound of flesh, and it can't happen. And it's it's really really hard to do. And I think uh, Matt Ray and Dave Ballew at Alabama. It I was rubbing my hands when they got that job this year because having seen what they were attempting and doing and attempting to and doing at Indiana with the personnel, at Alabama. Not surprised that they went fifteen and zero. Uh, they went fifteen and zero. Significantly lower injuries. They had a blowout in the in the national championship game. And I'll say this. What, what does Matt Ray's voice sound like? Don't know. Exactly. He kept his fucking mouth shut the whole year, and they still did better than previous year.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's that's the new approach. Uh, the, the Astros are doing it a little bit, too, uh, in the MLB round. I've always said, you know, it's, it's a shame that they got caught cheating because the stuff that they're doing – uh, it is like that, you know. They use the canapults and and those things like that. They're monitoring. That was my old boss.
1: That. that was my, that was my former boss from London Wasps.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah so I
1: worked I worked under Housie for about a year. I mean, he's he's recently just left, but um, awesome. So yeah, it really secure. It's like I worked under Housie at London Wasps in 2012. So he was the head that came in. I didn't get one of the positions that he filled, and that's when I left. And, you know, I kind of went with his his blessing. You know, I went to Australia, Argentina. He went to England 7s, went to the Rio Olympics. He came second at the end of it. I think I was in the States and then he came over to the Astros. He ended up hiring my former intern from Tokyo, who's from Texas, to work with him. So it was just like full circle.
0: Crazy how the networking happens, but yeah, that, that stuff, same thing, you know, that started to happen. And, you know, I was like, this is, this is where we need to go. But just like you said, it's one of those things It takes a lot of work and you need that, that middle cog, if you will, to run everything. Cause if the person in the middle doesn't understand it or can't under, you know, oversee all those things and put them in the right direction it's going to fail and then on top of that you need the hands or the fingers of that to be able to offer those things and be experienced in what's going on and then you know we have talked about that pushback the older generation is going to say well i don't want to do this and if you have one issue with a sports coach who doesn't understand the anatomy or doesn't want to listen to what's going on that's you're gonna have the problem so i think that's definitely something that we need to see i just hope that it's going to be able to you know so maybe get cleared up uh once some of these teams especially in the professional realm, start start winning. And, you know, in the colleges, they start to uh, reach high performance as well.
1: I used to, uh, you remember in uh, Breaking Bad, the scene where he gets the box cutter and goes, (laughs) (laughs) I used to send that picture to my assistant probably like once a week and be like, this is what needs to happen. But (laughs) it it, it actually, this is the thing about William & Mary. They love to talk progressively when the rubber hits the road and it's time to pay the price of being progressive never never follow through it's it's really hard to do because you know inevitably you are going to get some pushback at once once you've made the decision this is the way, this is the direction I'm going to go this is the course of action I'm going to take you're going to get sufficient pushback eventually you're going to need some, you're going to need a few box cutters and it's it's messy it's
0: messy yeah you're going to get that pushback and, and I think it's important you need to be organized because it's going to come no matter where how good it is how great of a presentation once all those pieces are in it doesn't matter it's different you know yeah. and I think the the biggest thing is it puts pressure on those people that want to stay old school because if these teams that we just talked about start winning national championships right on a on a yearly basis and that becomes the kind of epitome of what strength conditioning at these levels should be they're going to all these schools are going to start cleaning house and we're going to have to get new people and i think that's where you're kind of holding on to the old guard and that's where that pushback comes from
1: then they don't want the bad news that's that's why most strength coaches don't test speed they don't want the bad news Mm -hmm. and it's, it's one of those things where you know as part of this high performance model is if if you say well, here's you know, one, of the, one of the first things I do with most sport coaches is say, right, define what success looks like. Once you've defined it, you know, Socrates, the beginning of wisdom lies in the definition of terms. Define precisely what it is you want to achieve and what success is going to look like, right? Okay, how do you propose we measure that in a, you know, in a valid and reliable way? Okay, right. What's the objective? Now you can measure it. How are you going to reverse engineer it to get, from, you know, from where you are now to where you want to be? And you just keep checking things up in that manner. Once you and I have agreed upon a metric and a target that I expect you to achieve by the end of the year, the pressure is on. And yeah, it's like it's, it's fairly normal as a strength coach to, to achieve that. But I mean, I would say it's probably rare for sport coaches to have, have that kind of focus put on them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, you know, it takes you out of your comfort zone. Uh, touching on the sport coach, what are your thoughts on the new thing kind of with, you know, uh, the guy before at Alabama where the new phase of strength conditioning in certain areas is you get the background for strength conditioning, you understand the science, and then you go into skills coaching. Do you think that has, a you know, that could help a little bit with, with the model we talked about, where your sport coaches have that uh, that background and you can rely on them? to carry out your strength conditioning stuff?
1: Um, I mean, how, how would the average conditioning coach feel if someone had been a skilled coach for 20 years and they just started, I'm going to be a strength coach. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there, it's much easier. I think it is much easier, uh, I'll say, you know, it it can be much harder to be a sport coach, but it can be much easier to be an instinctive sport coach than it can be to be an instinctive strength coaching coach. People can have, you know, a a natural kind of like systems mindset when it comes to sports. And some people can be like natural teachers, natural educators or like break movements down. Um, So there there are sport coaches out there. That have you know tremendous coaching resumes that have no formal education. Um, the same is probably not true of being a strength and conditioning coach. Um, so I th- I think it's going to be easier for him going from being a strength coach to a to a, a special teams coordinator. Um, I still I, d- I don't know I don't know. It's it's certainly more likely than going the other way. It, it should be like that, though. You know, it should be what, what we discussed with the, the high performance model that the easiest way to integrate tech, uh, tactical, technical, physical, psychological is to master them all yourself. And so it would, it would be great to do that. But I just think that the number of uh, individuals, in sport that are going to have just the the capacity and the ability to be a master of all of those. It's just like prohibitively small, Um, you know, speaking to, you know, just like colleagues of mine and, you know, speaking to people all over, you probably Dan Paff has done it. Charlie Francis has done it. Verka Shansky did it, you know, from, you know, the academic and tactical technical, that kind of stuff. I think if you look at like, Eddie Jones, England rugby coach. He, he helped Japan to beat South Africa in the world cup, which was such an odd occurrence. They made a movie about it in Japan. Uh, he took England to the world cup final. Um, I have a friend who's on the staff and basically he, he's notorious for just chewing up staff. And, uh, they got, they got rid of, or the performance director walked and, um, you know, I had a conversation with one of the strength coaches. I said, oh, who's going to be the high-performance director? And they're like, oh, Eddie's going to be the high-performance director. And he was. <laughs> so he he could do the high-performance director's job and be a head coach as well, which is pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Like I said, it's just going to take a lot, or, or the, the right people that can execute all those things in those right positions. And I think those are going to be few and far between because the names you just rattled off are legendary in the sport. You know, they don't come, you know, around the corner, you know, there's five or six of them. And, you know, it's got that thing when you're around those people as well, you can feel it. You know, there's just so much going in there. We talked about Exos before with, with Dan, you know, and just being around him and the stuff that he pulls out and stuff. So being able to replicate that over and over again, exactly. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. So I think it's important to, you know, work on, you know, certain those, those mastery points little by little and and kind of build those in there instead of trying to master all of them. The education system has to change.
1: Um, and, And more importantly, like James Smith, James Smith tweeted out today and it's timely as ever. Any coach that was a bust as a hire, it's not their fault. It's the person that hired him. It's their fault. So... You know, I I kind of had this conversation with one of my assistants. I said, do you think any of the administrators upstairs can even accurately define what it is you do? And he's like, of course not. I said, right, so what confidence do you have in their ability to objectively evaluate your ability to do that job? And he's like, they can't. I said, right, so should they be hiring? No. (laughs) And yet what will happen is the AD hires the football coach and basically the football coach gets hired on, you know, uh, brand value. Because uh, you know you can't really objectively uh, evaluate a football coach unless you know what you're doing. And then the football coach uh, goes to what they perceive to be the best strength coach they know, which is basically the biggest taskmaster. And if they say no, if they ask that person for a recommendation, it keeps going down the chain and that person gets hired. When in reality, it's you know someone who doesn't know what they're doing hires somebody else who doesn't know what they're doing who hires somebody
0: else. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the people that evaluate your job. I have no idea. You know, I talk about it all the time, coaches will walk into your weight room and say, why are they standing around? What are they doing? You know, yeah. and it's just, it's in the middle of whatever you're trying to do it. And, and that's the biggest problem. You have people hiring you or, you know, when you have meetings at universities, you're meeting with people that have a clue of what you're doing. They don't know what an exercise is. Most of them don't even know where the weight room is in in the school. And, and like I said, until that changes, you know, as we've been talking about, it's going to dictate everything because it's going to be that constant order. You have an AD there, doesn't understand. They're going to hire a strength coach based off of whatever networking, or they're going to get a coach and they're going to hire their friend or somebody else they like. And until I think that top person gets changed or we come up with criteria that everybody can follow in the college and say okay we need to hire a strength coach we need to hire somebody as a performance director what do we want and i think that if you have a school like the alabamas like these places that are starting to change with that high performance model they can say okay what did they do well this is what they looked for and you know i think that will help or they'll start picking off the tree of those coaches that that set up the high performance model
1: yeah while you were know, talking it just it made me realize that it exists right now in the army, you know, absolutely. There are, there are intangibles to leadership, but if you want to be an officer, you're going to have to go to officer candidate school. There's a list of, Hey, if you want to achieve this rank, here's the number of years of service you have to do Here's what we expect. And blah, 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 blah. Like they've done their best to spell it out. And I think it's because they have several hundred years of trial and error, whereas sport is still pretty much in its infancy, but it can be done.
0: Yeah. And it's also with the experience, you know, in the army is a whole different thing with the mindset, but everybody's been through it. You know, I don't know if you've read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Um, Mm -hmm. the finance book. He talks about the best teachers he had was he was in flight school for the Vietnam War because all of his instructors flew. And he talks about how talking to them, you know, that passion was there, but he knew that they were teaching him the right thing because they flew and they flew with him. Now, you go back to, you know, you go to school, you have teachers that teach entrepreneurial things or business classes. They never started a business, so they have no idea. They're just getting paid to teach curriculum, and I think that goes along with same thing with strength and conditioning. It's not seen as a higher priority. It's just teach these 60 classes and then they'll have a degree in whatever you want to call it. And then you come out and you realize you're, you're kind of lost.
1: How many, how many ads do you know that were sport coaches?
0: Uh, I don't know any very few. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think that's something that, that definitely, definitely has to change. Uh, So we've touched on a lot of different things. What do you think anybody starting off in the field, right? Fresh out of high school, played a sport, or they want to get into this. What piece of advice would you give them, uh, you know, going into it? Uh,
1: go, I mean, it's tough when when you start out as a coach, you have no kind of like objective, uh, criteria for what constitutes a successful coach, but, you know, speak to people to, to find out who's, who is, uh, a successful prominent coach in your area and basically go join yourself at the hip to them and uh, hang around and, you know, ask, ask for opportunities uh, in time and you'll be given them and master that, get a little bit better. And just, you know, that, I think that that apprenticeship model is if you look in the span of human history, it's only in the last What's Cambridge? Cambridge is a thousand years old. That's probably the oldest university institute. I think it's the second oldest university in the world for a thousand years out of the entirety of human history. um, It was apprenticeship model. And then it was, you know, universities and stuff like that. So the apprenticeship model has got us this far. And I think with something like coaching, it's good to have that kind of like mentor in the trenches. And have you ever seen the movie Jero dreams of sushi? No. It's the best sushi restaurant in the world. It's got three Michelin stars. It's, it's on Netflix. When I was in Tokyo, I went to the Sun's restaurant. It was 700 bucks for two people. Oh I, didn't I didn't pay. I didn't pay. When you go there, so they, they asked the dad. At the time of the, the documentary, he was like 80. He said, when did you think you start getting good at sushi? And he's like, probably took me 50 years. So he was in his 70s when he thought he was good at sushi. When you go there, they don't let you touch the fish until you've been coaching, or sorry, chefing for 10 years. Wow. So for the first year, they said, I, I, you ask them about like that. The first year, you do the, uh, the hot towels. Said so if you mess that up, you can do it again. Then they let you do like the rice. Then they let you do all this kind of stuff. But it's like that, that kind of like, you know, cruel walk run of coaching. Start now do that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's great. I mean, you know, I, I think nowadays, especially this, the the affirmation right away. I think what we're doing is people want the now, right now, right? They want to get out of high school and then go in the NFL, and they want to take the the shortest way to get there. And I feel like, especially in the fitness industry, you can't do that. You have to pay your dues because it's only going to make you better. And I think a lot of people are like, well. My friend or somebody told me this is what they did. i don 't want any part of that, but what you're starting to do is you're cutting out chunks of things that you're missing, right? I think every strength coach needs to go on a field unprepared in front of a hundred people and not have any idea what you 're doing because you have to understand what it feels like to not be prepared, and then you 'll be prepared next time, and then you know then you start to organize your thoughts and your programs and get a pretty good feel of of your team. And then you can start progressing, but then what you need a program that doesn't work. So we can go back to the drawing board. And then once you get comfortable with one team, now you have to go to another team, whole different group of personalities, whole group of, you know, different people to deal with and on and on and on. And I think that is something that works. And I think that model is perfect for strength and conditioning. I think we need to find a better way to compensate a little bit more so we don't have to eat ramen noodles. and and live in studio apartments, but that is, you know, as, as old as time, but I think nowadays what you're seeing is that pull apart because they want it now. Kids want to go now. They want to do an internship for six months someplace and be hired. And that's never going to happen, especially in this field. You know, it should be treated. I feel like not on the same plane, but just like a medical doctor, you go to medical school, you know, fully 11 years and you need every bit of that before you come out and have surgery, you know, Mm. not that it's that serious, but the same thing is you need to master certain certain skills and make sure those are down because when we let you out or when you go out into the field, your job is to make these people better. And I think what we've been talking about that pressure to say, Hey, this stuff that you're doing needs to win us a national championship. I think if that was there and that was the main goal of every university that, you know, that uh, apprenticeship model would be hit on every sector because all of them would know, okay, I have to spend as much time in this bubble here because when I get out there, I have to win and I have to produce or I'm gone. And I think mm-hmm. there's too much of that coasting we talked about for 12 years, which affects the field all the way down. Yeah.
1: you know, there, There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of institutions out there that try and be all things to all men. And I think that's, that's a slippery road. You know, you want to do, you know positive outreach in the community you want to win but you know oh we want to generate revenue and all this kind of stuff i think it's like when when i've been a part of more successful organizations there's been that singular focus and everyone in the building is pushing towards that and once you start to pull in all different directions yes yeah, it's, it's not good i mean just touching on the thing you said about being patient i would not have listened to that advice in my earlier in my career um i went from starting my internship to coaching international rugby in three years. So I've got a real jump first look later mentality and probably still do now. Um, if you are going to do that though, be prepared for the failure.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. No. Yeah. With the patience, like I said, if you can, you know, take every opportunity, but yeah, you're right. You have to be prepared for the failure, you know, mm. and some people, it, you know, they can deal with it right away. And anybody listening, if you're not prepared for failure, you cannot do this because it's okay. going to happen. Probably the first day, the first week, something's gonna happen. you're gonna fail. the team's gonna fail. the program's not going to work. This is how you learn and it's not uh you know you can write the most that we've talked about it before beautiful programs on the computer, but putting them into practice and getting them to proceed the results that you want on the field is 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 a very hard task, so just make sure when you're going through programs, try things but but just be prepared to fail yeah. Uh, so what's next in the future for you? Uh, I mean, I know we got COVID and craziness going on, but, but what's the next direction?
1: So I want to keep going, growing Strength Coach Network. Um, you know, we, we've got members in like 30 different countries right now, and I'm, I'm really pretty happy with, with how it's grown in the last year. I think we can grow even more. Um, what, what I'm trying to do is currently I'm developing a long-form course, and uh, so one thing I've realized with, with the network, with, with the subscription business is that it's, it's kind of more like the buffet, like, Oh, I'm going to try a bit of this, 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 which is great. Some people do want that. And some people want more structured learning and they want real get into the detail, you know, tell me what to read, tell me to do this, this, this. So I've developed well, I'm developing for release this May, a long-form course, which is basically going to be like the Strength Coach Network Foundation. So the, the emphasis is if you're a field sport athlete, or, you know, yeah, field or court sport athlete, uh, level one is foundations, i.e. if you were an intern or a developing coach and I had the opportunity to lock you in a room for a weekend, how would I spend 20 hours to make you the best coach you could be? And it's probably going to be about another 20 hours on top of, you know, additional reading uh, papers, practical tasks, questions, stuff like that. So we've got a long form course. It's going to be released in May. And then we're going to follow up with level two, which is, here's the distinction. Typically when you're an intern, you, 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 you can be a successful intern by just being a house elf, you know, <laughs> clean. Oh, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once, once you get hired, it's actually about how do you be the best coach in the room, i.e. be a technician. So that's going to be the level two, which is like, you know, now, now you're coaching athletes day-to-day. How do you start to individualize, optimize everything and get a little bit more scientific with what you're doing? And then another slap to the face in your career is once you become a head or a, a high-performance director, it doesn't matter how much you coach because if you are moving all those pieces around the chessboard, you're never going to coach. It's all about management. Leadership, coordinating with others, communication, conflict resolution, that kind of stuff. So that's going to be level three. So we're in the process of releasing those three levels over the next eighteen months, and um, you know, fingers crossed it's it's a success. But I mean, the, uh, the presenters that we've got, you know, I've got uh, you know Professor Brian Mann, Cameron Joss, Nick DeMarco, Vlad Jovanovic, you know, all, all guys like that. So real real high level presenters. Place a success.
0: Yeah, no, awesome stuff. Uh, anybody listening, be sure to check that out. Like I said, it's great. Uh, if you're interested, um, if anybody wants to reach out to you, ask you questions, you know, talk about more what we've touched on the show or with the network, uh, where's the best place to uh, get a hold of you? So just rugby strength coach on
1: social media and then strengthcoachnetwork.com.
0: All right, and uh, when I put the post out on the Instagram uh, for this episode, I will definitely tag him in the. Um, in the post and all that stuff will be there.
1: Cool,
0: man. Thank you. Thank you so much, man, for coming on. I I enjoyed the conversation. It was awesome, man. And, And thank you so much.